Welcome to the Revelation On Demand podcast. I'm your host, J.D. Myers, and I'm joined today by my wonderful co-host, Chris Hess. How you doing, buddy? Well, as always. That's great to hear. I, we we're going over Chapter 5 today, and we got quite a bit to cover, I guess. Uh, would you like to uh, bring up everyone to speed who's maybe not uh, listened to all our previous podcasts on uh, what happened during the last episode? So the last episode, uh, I probably don't have to go over the last four episodes. But basically, Jesus meets John while John is in exile, his former uh, disciple, John, after Jesus has risen to heaven. Uh, we went over some specific details on the messages that um, Jesus was trying to convey to John, and he had a specific task for him. But in the same instance, when Jesus reveals himself to John, he actually opens up an eye into, uh, if you want to call it a portal, you can, uh, an eye into heaven, and John, in spirit, transcends into the throne room of heaven. And basically, he gets to see everything that's in the throne room of God. Uh, we find out that there's 24 elders, or 24 seats, with a bunch of elders that are um, like a divine... Like a divine, what what what's the best word for that? A uh, divine council is what I believe they are. There is some people who believe this is a, a representative of the body of the church who is in heaven. So, okay, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to bring that up, but anyway, so we also got seven lamps that, that signify the um. What what were you saying about like the seven? The seven layers of the spirit, or is it the seven spirits of God? It's the sevenfold spirit of God, and that was just the seven divine attributes that make up God. But it also is representative of seven churches with their uh, patron angels. Right, which we did go over those seven churches in chapters two and three. So, um, an additional seven lamps are in heaven uh, waiting for, you know waiting for us to witness. And yeah. you'll get that if you heard episodes one, two, and three. <laughs> right. Anyway, we also have, uh, not to stall any further, we also have four creatures that were in the throne room, and they continuously sing praise throughout all eternity. One represented or resembled an eagle. The other resembled a man. And two additional ones, a lion and a ox, or an ox. And uh, another interesting thing that I learned of since last time was is that these four creatures, these cherubim, as we went over in the last episode, they are kind of like the the head of worship within the temple in heaven. So basically, they run the worship that we're going to be experiencing here in Chapter 5. So that's just something I wanted to add to that. Okay. I love worship bands, and that's a heck of a, work, a worship band, if I do say myself. If I do say so myself, uh, worship leaders, if you will. Yeah, yeah, no, they that, they are awesome creatures, and uh, I can't wait to see them when we get to heaven. So, uh, we want to go over a little bit of what's going on in the world. So, uh, yeah, so we're both in agreement that over the past couple weeks, it hasn't been a huge world uh, standstill. Well, I guess it is kind of a standstill. There's nothing that's been Earth-defining 
Yeah, nothing's lately. really nothing's really changed so far. It's it's kind of still at the same place with lockdowns over COVID and just the stress over this upcoming election and everything. I think everything's going to be kind of in a hiatus. Uh, there was some uh, interesting things coming up about child trafficking lately that is just horrific to hear about, you know. Yes, so that was something that we found and that we're both uh, avid supporters for uh, further evaluation into child trafficking cases, organizations that could also help provide for um, citizens or even people that are, um, you know, needing to be taken care of while they're in the United States, had they been brought here or taken away. There's a lot of resources for that, you know, to bring these people back, to fix their lives, whatever the case may be. So we definitely, you know, child trafficking is just as awful as human trafficking, but it's one of those, you know, such a sacred thing in our life is our childhood. And the last thing on earth, I, I don't think, you know, any sane person would want to see is for a child to be hurt or to have been uh, reprimanded by the wrong hands in that just, way. Just abused in that way. It's, it's horrific. And I really hope that something's done about it soon. And an interesting statistic I heard is actually not uh, more vulnerable or what you'd think more vulnerable households are is actually children of two parent households where both mom and dad work, where the children are most susceptible to being picked up and trafficked in this way. And it's kind of, uh, it was kind of horrifying to hear that because I, I'm, I have a two parent household with children and that just makes me want to, uh, be more involved with what my children are doing. And I hope, and this is mostly for teenagers, but, I hope that anyone listening who has teenagers will will stop and take a look at what their teenagers are doing outside of the house. Yeah. Just to close on that too. Uh, you know, we're not trying to fear monger here in any way or, you know, uh, or even truly um, try to invoke a hate towards, you know, human action, but, you know, ab- abduction rates really, they go skyrocketed. They, I mean, we're finding so much out right now. So a lot of, um, a lot of stuff, I guess what I'm getting to is that, uh, a lot of these abduction rates are through the roof and it's something that we're seeing more in recent years, but you know, it really helps for people to find out about those in the past who they may have lost as well. Yeah. And then not then to pivot on to lighter news. I just got back from vacation up in Yellowstone, which was pretty, pretty busy uh, it was nice to get up there and just be part of God's nature and exploring his creation and just enjoying the beauty that is up there. I suggest we rented a, a camper trailer. I suggest that if you get a chance to do it, there's many sites where you can rent a camper trailer and go go camping for the weekend. So it's good to get out and good to be part of God's creation, especially in times of stress like this. So, and appreciative of it too, by the sound of it. Oh yeah, no, I I needed the break, and uh, I I definitely didn't get as thorough in the notes as I did before. I hope I still have enough here, but uh, we'll go over that here in a little bit. Okay, yeah, no worries, we got this. Uh, you know, we're gonna start with our reading now. Uh, this is usually how we 
uh, how our formula goes. We just go straight into the reading after our intro, uh, for those of you who are new to this. And uh, we're going to start at Revelations chapter 5. Uh, there is a total, if you wanted to know, of 14 verses. A bit of a shorter book today, or uh, chapter. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to start reading. If that's all right, JD. Yeah, go ahead. Please give us the scripture. Alrighty. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break these seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. Speaking of John, he says, I wept and wept because no one was found no one who no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God, Persons from every tribe and language and people and nation you made you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Powerful, powerful descriptive scripture there. And this is, as I was alluding to before, this is the, the worship session that goes on in heaven right before Jesus opens the first seal. And uh, this this is kind of part of and parcel where many churches get their idea of needing a worship before, say, a service, is that even in heaven for this this one uh, this service, this ultimate service where God is going to put right the heaven, earth, and under the earth, 
he uh we have a worship service and they they uh sing three different songs here where you have the the cherubim which are angels of the highest order the council which are possibly the divine council which are these uh spiritual beings some people believe this is the the church leaders who have uh ascended to heaven already and then you have these these thousands by thousands or 10,000 times 10,000 and this is to be uh, probably us as people who have accepted Christ and gone to heaven right before revelation so that's a very interesting take on that i actually was sort of thinking that same thing when he um when the elder made a a backward reference to the line of the tribe of judah the root of david yeah, and that's coming from uh, straight out of Isaiah, where Isaiah made this prophecy about how the there's going to be descendant from the line of David, who is actually the root of David, which would be God, or Jesus, as we know him. And that would be, uh, this is uh, the prophecy in Isaiah 11, pretty much coming to, to fruition here, where the Lion of Judah has come to... Uh, open the seven seals or the seals on the scroll and therefore he is capable of doing so so john was uh, had misled himself into thinking that no one in the heaven the earth or under the earth could do so right right and um so as we we talk about how this is the beginning of the end times this is right before the seventh seal uh, is opened up and, and many of the people that I've talked to through these passages agree that it the most significant sign we will see right before the Antichrist shows up is that there will be the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount and peace will be brought to the Middle East and that is the peace will be brought by the Antichrist figure so this is uh, something that we need to look out for as believers and just, you know, kind of, this is where we do need to still be involved in politics because we need to, you know, be ready for the day when revelation occurs because we'll, we will see the temple be rebuilt. And that's the, that's the sign of the, the end. Huh. That's, that's another take. I, I was not expecting that. Uh, um, I mean, I know that I most people, when they refer to Revelation, uh, not to get too far ahead of ourselves here, they do uh, bring up the rapture, but also the insurrection of the Antichrist, and um, said worship, or even said deterrent, in this case, for, yeah. um, you know, from bringing them back and stuff. I, and you're saying that, so my only question about that is you're saying that specifically about bringing up a temple for jesus or the antichrist i i feel a little simple by asking that oh no what what'll happen is they are going to rebuild the temple on the temple mount in jerusalem right now there is a mosque built i believe the dome of the rock on the temple mount so uh for that to happen pretty much there would have to they'd have to level that temple and then rebuild the temple to god 
on the Temple Mount, which is why if you know anything about the Middle East or if you ever have uh, visited Jerusalem, there's so many restrictions on visiting the Temple Mount. And often the Muslims who are in charge of the Temple Mount right now uh, keep Jews away from the top of the Temple Mount because they don't want to start any sort of, uh, you know, rebellions or anything like that because uh, it's a really tense situation where, where the Muslims believe they're right, so they have a right to the Temple, and of course the Jews do too, and then the Christians as well. But as, a, as what we'll see is peace will come, and then there'll be a push to rebuild the Temple, and then that is the final sign of revelation unfolding that is like the final mile mile marker and there's a bunch of different signs that we've passed apparently there's a, a cataclysmic war which many people attribute to the first and second world war because there's uh, descriptions that we'll get into later about how uh, weapons were discharged that just melted entire cities and, and vaporized entire armies, and that many people believe is what a nuclear weapon is uh, thought of, because at the time when John was seeing this, he didn't know what a nuclear weapon was, so many people think that we're already well on our way to revelations, just as f far as my study has taken me, this one sign, when the temple's rebuilt, is the the last and that tells us that the end is nigh oh okay that that makes that makes a little more sense to me because he did bring that up a little bit earlier on like what the the final step of that is yeah so this part of revelation is is god setting sorting out heaven earth and under the earth this we're starting out in heaven he is setting heaven correctly because there was three rebellions that god has to deal with from all the way in the beginning back in genesis where there's three major rebellions satan who is thought of as the adversary and often this this cloud-like entity that embodies all sorts of forces that are working against God, but there is one Satan who was a, a cherubim, much like the four creatures around the throne, who decided he wanted to be God on earth, and that is where his rebellion came from, and that started when he tempted Adam and Eve to uh, turn away from God and not follow him in the garden. Then there's... Okay. Uh, oh, go on. Okay. Okay. And then there's the angels in Genesis 6. These are often, many people refer to them as the Nephilim. These are the sons of God who came and took uh, human wives and uh, sinned against God by trying to take over, you know, they, they were these uh, God kings sort of figures back in ancient times that would rise up and, and bring nations to heal. And they were <clears throat> often thought of as... It, these ones were truly sons of God that turned away from him and rebelled. And uh, yep. then there's the or the rebellion of man, which is not when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. That was Satan's rebellion because he was misleading God's creation. Mankind rebelled in uh, Genesis 11 where we get to the story of the Tower of Babylon. And I have never 
when a lot of people picture this, they always picture a tower that ancient people were trying to build to heaven. This is not what I think of when I think of the Tower of Babel. What I think of the Tower of Babel is I think of a man-made stairway to heaven. What does that look like? Well, I'm kind of a science geek and, and a nerd, so I'm thinking more like a Stargate sort of thing where they're trying to get into heaven without doing it God's way. They're trying to make do it their way. So I don't know, uh, you know how legit that is, but when I think of the Tower of Babel, I think of some sort of doorway or gateway that brings humans from Earth into heaven. So, yeah, and supposedly that Tower of Babylon was also one of the wonders of the ancient world that was known as perhaps the tallest man-made structure on that, uh, we, uh, even historically. Uh, that is known of. Well, we don't really know what the Tower of Babel looked like. It could have been taller than the Burj Khalifa, who knows. But what I think of is less of an actual like tall building. It might have been like the tallest building in the city, so to say, just because they were you know, obsessed with the idea of getting to heaven on their own. So, But I, I think more of it as being a building to house some sort of doorway or gateway they were building to try and get into heaven the back door, so to say. Yeah, which is just, <laughs> I mean, unrealistic, as you were saying, because you're a science or you're a logistical guy, too. So obviously that can't happen physically. But, you know, I mean, God laid that out for us when, um, when even going back to Adam and Eve, when the Garden of Eden, <laughs> when the Garden of Eden was the actual, you know, physical manifestation of heaven on earth, and there was no other way around it. That was his blessing to Adam and Eve as their domain, and it was a heavenly domain. Until Satan brought in you know, his rebellion, um, took the form of a snake, and tempted Eve, and then Eve tempted Adam, for those of you who don't know that tale. Yeah, and um, I believe that I, I totally believe a gateway, a, a Tower to Babel, we'll just refer to that gateway as the Tower of Babel. I totally believe that that is possible. Now, I don't know how to do it. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin, you know, saying, oh, well, you could do this, this, and this, and that would pierce the veil between heaven and earth. But for whatever reason, the people of Babel had gotten their hands on the knowledge of how to pierce that veil. So... I believe it's totally possible. That's why God came down and scrambled them. So I, I don't think it's impossible to get to heaven without God. I think there is a physical way. That's why God put a stop to it. Because if there was no way to actually pierce the veil, he wouldn't have stopped it. You know, Because it would have been futile. We would have been trying to open something up and it, it never works. So... He stopped it because it does work. It's just we're not supposed to get to heaven that way. We're supposed to get to heaven through Christ. And that does not include our current physical bodies. It includes our resurrected bodies that we will, will excuse me, well, that we'll get at a later date. Yeah, that, that is true. That, that clarifies it again for me because uh, I wasn't sure if you were saying like, okay, well, Babylon, you know, there's no way that's going to happen. But I mean... If there is that potential, it does justify that a little bit more, wouldn't you say? 
Yeah, and there's a reason we're told not to do stuff like this in magic is because this works. This spiritual stuff does work, and there's a reason that we need to not do magic stuff like Ouija birds and tarot cards and, and palm reading and stuff like that. Because if the person is contacting spirits to uh, try and pry some you know unearned knowledge out of the universe sort of thing there is a very high likelihood that a demon or an evil spirit can uh, can make that go awry and mislead and give you false information and uh, just lead you down a terrible path. I, I've had some experiences with some uh, less than pleasant spirits when I before I was a believer, and I, I this stuff is real, and I don't know how else to say it, but the reason we're told not to do magic isn't because it doesn't work. It's because it does work and it's dangerous. So anyways, carrying point on. Taken. Point taken. <laughs> no, thank you for sharing. I, I appreciate that too. Uh, carrying on. So in uh, line four, it says he wept uncontrollably, which uh, this is one of those things that I, as I learn more and more Greek, this kind of bothers me, but the Greek is he, uh, convulsed violently or wept and wept in uh just as he's seeing the terrors of the earth and the fact that no one can open this sealed scroll to bring about god's perfect will he's he's just you know beridden by himself here he he's like there's no one who can open the scroll because no one's worthy and we'll never we'll never see the glory of god in all of its glory so that's what it's it's just a bad translation. It's it's he didn't just weep. He's like thrown himself on the ground and is just sobbing un, uncontrollably. So then line five, it talks about. Sorry. Um, then one of the elders said to me, "Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed and is able to open the scroll and seven seals." And then I saw a lamb as if it, looking as if it had been slain. So the elder, the council member, whoever this person is, can see who the lamb really is. He sees him as the Lion of Judah, this, this uh, conquering hero. But when John looks, he sees the lamb, or as many scholars believe, it's Jesus. And this is coming from Genesis 49... 8 through 10. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Your alliance cub, Judah. When you return from the prey, my son, like a lion, he crouches and lies down with the lioness. Who dares rouse him? So right there, that is talking about the second coming of Jesus, where he is coming to be the, you know, will and testament of God in writing what needs to be written in heaven earth and under the earth and as i was saying this this whole scene we're seeing is is them bringing about harmony in heaven because he needs to bring he needs to establish perfect order in heaven before he goes down to earth and as we see he brings judgment down on earth as where in heaven he is he's bringing it to perfect order so that's where we are but there you guess that perspective, no, I mean, I was going to say that perspective really puts things into play. I mean, 
yeah, if that's how if, if if man has fallen and how we perceive things to be not only deceitful but even tragic when in all actuality without that sin that we've committed, you know, there's a triumphant life to live. Um yeah, I mean that was pretty much what I was thinking. <laughs> that's great. So we come back to our favorite number, seven. He is the the lamb with seven horns, seven eyes, and the sevenfold spirit. So Jesus is literally the number 777, which is seven is known as the number of perfection in the Bible. So he is the perfection. He's the trifecta of perfect seven, whereas the mark of the beast is 666. So here we are setting up. 777 versus 666 and of course as we know as christians we win in the end so uh you know not to spoil the ending for anyone who hasn't read it uh and then verses eight through nine this is where as the lamb approaches and takes the scroll all of heaven explodes in worship and like i said before that's the the cherubim are leading this worship and the song the elders are are the ones who are her singing and, and, and praising and playing instruments. And then even us as people who are brought up to heaven, we also get instruments and get to sing and praise with, with all this. And like I said, the cherubim are the ones who are kind of conducting that worship session, so to say. And it's supposed to, it, the, the English doesn't do it justice. If you want to uh, get more of a, a poetic and, and, uh, melodic feel for it. I'd suggest reading this section here where the song is, or the songs are in uh, the King James version, because it has a much more pretty translation where it, it kind of makes it sound a little more melodic, and you can maybe get a beat to it. Then I mean, there's a lot of people who use these these uh, songs, so to say, for uh, w- modern worship music, which is pretty interesting. No, honestly, I'm not. I'm not going to advertise for anyone. But I was just thinking of that one that goes, uh, "Every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb." Yeah, yeah, and and some of my favorite worship songs are ones that take stuff from basically straight from Revelation, where it's like, "You are worthy, He who was, who is, and is to come." For honor, glory, power—you know those those kind of lines that come up in worship songs. Those songs tend to be more of my favorite sort of worship songs because I don't know—they feel like they have more more meaningful power behind them. I guess I don't know. I I'm not a big worship guy personally. I I kind of I, I don't care much for the corporate worship aspect where it's right before uh, the the message where. Uh, there's a group of people and it's kind of a whole body church worship. I'm kind of more of the kind who likes to listen to worship songs on my phone when I'm kind of done or I need to just kind of unplug and listen to some music instead of uh, my normal like massive feed of podcasts. I, uh, I definitely like to turn up some worship music every now and then, especially when I'm driving around in the car. It's uh it's always wonderful to kind of have a little bit of a worship session by yourself in the car, just you and God and just praising him as the all powerful that he is. Yeah. To substitute areas of your life with more God in it is always a good idea. And that's, um, 
Yeah, I mean, everyone fits in in a different way. It's not like we're mandated to worship a specific way every single time. You know, we all have our own desires and stuff. We've all been made uniquely in God's image. Yeah, and that's what I love about this this faith is that as just being kind of a baseline Christian where I personally don't claim any denominations, uh, but just being a baseline Christian is you don't have to judge people for the way they worship God or they interact with God. It's more about as long as they're working on their personal relationship with God, they're working, they're walking in the right direction. And there's there's certain things that you can see as you're as you start to walk with God that you'll see in other people, especially more godly people, that uh, you you can recognize, and then you can easily see who's who's truly growing in their faith, and then who's not. You know, or who's stagnant or who's falling out of faith, which is quite interesting. That is a, that. That's a thing. You know that a lot of, well, I think non-believers tend to stereotype uh, uh, most Christians to be that type, and then you have the people who are in the, so to speak, clique of the church that have a hard time understanding people like that. And it's just, you know, when you, when you really bring yourself into the spirit in the presence of the Lord. Uh, it's much more, it gives you a certain level of understanding and patience toward um, even misbehaving, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So now we're going to come up to another translation issue at verse 10. And uh, we're reading out of the NIV, and it says, You have made them to be the kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Now, this is a translation issue because many manuscripts, and if you have. if you have a footnotes on it, it'll show it sometimes. But most of the manuscripts actually say, uh, and has made us onto our God kings and priests, where he's it's talking to the people who are there. This is one of the elders saying, us here, the elders and those that are worshiping God are made into kings and priests, whereas... When it says them, it kind of feels like he's talking about another group of people. And uh, it's it's supposed to be referring to the people within the throne room who are following God and who are, who are carrying out his will. Yeah, and I think that sort of almost like gives them a human presence to a certain degree. Um, because like us could very well include, you know, us as well. I mean, you know. Because God stands above all, obviously, you know, there's the Trinity, the Holy Trinity of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God. Uh, Though, with them being the perfect trifecta of seven, if you really think about it, you know, us, anyone aside from those, from the singularity that is those three, is a creation, or, you know, stems from God rising from darkness, complete nothingness. Yeah. So it, it, this was just an issue because it is referring to us as in the royal us who is there. So that could be anyone who's been brought into the throne room before this happens. <coughs> and then real quickly, back on the rebellions, there is the the people who are worshiping God, the cherubim the elders, and then those thousands and thousands of people. That is in direct reference to bringing in 
back into harmony in heaven, the three rebellions of Satan, angels, and man. The cherubim are same entity type entities as Satan is, so they are worshiping God and brought into harmony. The uh, council, the elders, are often thought of as being the same as angels, so they are being brought into harmony with God, and then of course the thousands upon thousands that are in the throne room worshiping, that is a reference to man, so... Right, with the end goal in mind that, um, but with the end goal in mind, uh, what was I trying to say? <laughs> you can have to that up. I have no idea, but but this is this is this chapter was the beginning and the end of bringing heaven into order, so that the rest of Revelation can continue and God can bring uh, earth and under the earth into order in His new divine creation. And then in verse uh, 12 is the seven attributes again. <coughs> Let's see. Um, it says, uh, Worthy yeah. is lame who is slain, power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, and glory, and praise. Seven attributes there. Then 13, it is talking uh, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise, honor, and glory, and power. These four are repeated because four is the number of creation in the Bible. So this is the beginning of the new creation. So it, it says that again with this, as he brings heaven into order and he is about to open the first seal, he is creating the new Jerusalem, the new earth, the new heaven, and bringing all of God's plan full circle to the ultimate destination sort of things. Yes, so. and redemption too, especially for the the fall of man, um, Satan arguably, and the angels is to uh, you know provide retribution for all. And um, just to call back to what you were saying a little bit earlier about Jesus having to pretty much fix everything up and level everything out on earth, I mean, that's, you know, there's a reason for that. And that's just because of, you know, the condemnation that was each act of rebellion. Yeah, yeah. And as we go on forward, we will see what people rue for their sins, basically. And we're going to see desolation and destruction and the four horsemen and the dragon and the beast and all sorts of things coming up in the next chapters where God is bringing down punishment on those who rebelled against him. So those who repented are, you know, saved. They are brought up to heaven. They are, are you know, brought into the throne, throne room. I'm personally not sold on post-trip, pre-trip yet. I'm not, you know, 100% sure, but it kind of sounds like we will be brought up pre-trip from what I've studied so far, but that could change. I'm willing to change my mind on these sort of minor doctrinal things. But as we see, this is heaven in order. Now we go on to bringing the earth to order, the seven seals and the plagues and everything that comes upon that. And there's, there's, it's just rich with imagery and symbolism. And there's so much that we can learn from this. Again, we're just scratching the surface on this. You could probably spend hours just studying this chapter. I mean, I, I watch two or three study 
like chapter study guides when I am researching for this. So there's just hours of content on this stuff and we're just scratching the surface. You got anything you want to add before we close it up? No, uh, I mean, other than the fact that I really liked this one too, because it's, I, I, my apologies if I was having any difficulties reading with it. Um, and thank you for pointing that out that I could read it in King John and maybe think along easier next time. But uh, what I really like about these chapters is you get a feel for it. It's very heartfelt in certain ways. And it's almost entrancing when you get into the actual vivid, the vividness that is what is the realm of heaven. What, how does John feel about all that he's dedicated his life to? And, you know, a sad portrayal that had deceived him from his own eyes in the realm of heaven itself. Right, right. And and this is, as I said last episode, Revelation's all about giving us an idea of what we can expect to come and that we will ultimately be victorious and God is ultimately victorious no matter what, no matter what tragedies become us. Yes, faith. Faith is, is such a beautiful word and it's something to live by. Yep, and we try to live godly lives every day. So... I'll close this out if you have nothing else to add. Uh, thank you, sir, as always. Yep, thank you. Thank you, listener, for listening. And uh, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you catch your podcast from. We're still working on the iTunes. iTunes has made it really difficult to get your your podcast on for some reason. But uh, I'm not an Apple guy, so... Uh, please, if you like what we're doing, share this with a friend, family member, or someone from your church. This is a completely private venture. We receive no funding from any sources. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to contact me at revelationondemand at gmail.com. God bless and see you next time.